Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Is uh, whether it's your first Sunday, you've been here for a while, I just want to catch you up. We did this thing called the eight-week experiment here at Cascade. And the reason for it is we really believe that uh, church is supposed to be a community where every voice here matters and is significant and can add to it. Um, and you don't have to, like, put in your time. It's not like if your voice counts when you've been here for, like, a year or six months. We just want to hear the experience of the community so we can create something of church that's a reflection of the people who are actually here. Um, so what we did is we had eight weeks where we were inviting feedback every week. And we did some initial questions, final questions. Um, and then we sat with those this week and kind of pulled out what are the repeated themes that we, we, we saw. So we wanted to share with you what that was, what came out of that, and what we're planning on doing with it. So with everything uh, we looked at is we said, like, there was a good thing that was being pointed at. Like, hey, this thing's good, but it kind of directly correlated with, like, but there's an opportunity to grow more in it. Um, so one of the, the things that we experienced is a lot of you said that you felt safe here. Um, which is a church whose vision statement is safe to be, safe to grow, that's significant. Um, But what we saw with that is a lot of people's safety was individual and disconnected. So a lot of you said, I feel safe here, but I don't really know how I connect or how I fit into this. Um, And so with that, we want to create more opportunities for those that are looking for connection to be connected. Um, uh, like the thing that we just did with the connection, uh, the question of the week, that's like is, is awkward and pushing you out of your comfort zone that we're going to do. Uh, we just want to have a moment where you can acknowledge like, hey, you're, there's other people here too. Um, and let's have maybe a, a soft question we can kind of engage in. But we want to create more opportunities for those of you that are looking for connection ways to be with their public theology is a response to that. We're working on some more Sunday morning classes uh, that we're going to offer that will be kind of a smaller group that allow more interaction. Just a, a hint on that, we're developing a class on toxic masculinity, and we're developing a class on wonder. Uh, what does it look like to engage a world that has wonder? So uh, those are some opportunities hopefully we can have for people to connect. The other thing uh, that people said is they really appreciate the diversity of the preachers. Um, so... Like, as an example, I'm kicking off this Sunday. I might be teaching next Sunday. I'm not sure. But then I'm not going to be teaching for the next five weeks. And that's because that's an intentional movement. It's not like, Kurt got sleepy. Let's get some other people to preach. Um, We really believe that this church and church as a community is better if we're hearing from a diversity of different voices and different perspectives. Because if there is one God over all things one person's perspective on that couldn't possibly be enough. So it's an intentional movement to have diverse voices speaking into what we're doing, uh, which many of you said, hey, that's great. I really appreciate that. The one piece that we want to grow in is how are we making the links between the conversations we're having and Jesus more apparent? Um, And just to explain this, hopefully not as a a way of defense, but... uh, where I'm at personally and a lot of the people that are preaching are at in their spirituality is like Jesus is in all things. Like all conversations are ultimately Jesus conversations. And so sometimes we talk about them and some of the feedback, we're like Sunday morning is like great TED Talks. 
but where's Jesus? And we want to be more specific about saying, this is why we're talking about this in church. This is the Jesus moment that is there. Not to be pedantic, to use that, that experience it. I just realized that if you use pedantic, that can be pedantic. If you're like, I don't know what that word means. Why are you using that word? <laughs> Not to be insulting to your intelligence. But we want to make those links more clear because we see and experience it so clearly. And we don't want you walking out thinking, well, I don't know what that was, but that wasn't about Jesus. Because everything we're talking about is like, this is at the heartbeat of who Jesus is and what Jesus is inviting us into. Uh, the last thing is people talked uh, that appreciating our core values as a church of diversity, of intentionality, of prayer, of advocacy, and curiosity. Um, but looking to see those more engaged. Um, and so one of the things that uh, many of you know because you're a part of it, but others don't, we've had for the last six months an advocacy team meeting. And what we've been doing is our hope is as a church when we get involved in issues of advocacy, of coming alongside um, those that are treated insignificantly, we don't want to say, hey, church, we're all going to go do this, and then we'll all do this for six months, and then we're like, hey, that's kind of boring. Hey, church, we're all going to go do this, but rather have people that are passionate about certain things that match up with God's calling in their lives and their passion, skills, and gifts be able to serve as guides to the congregation. So when we talk about different issues that are happening in our world, in our community, you can say, hey, I'm interested in that. There's a person that you can talk to that's currently involved in that area of advocacy, and they can tell you about what they've learned, how they're involved, and what it's looking like. Ultimately, our goal in a church is to get you all involved in different things that are the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Um, not like, hey, we're all going to, we'll still do those things. We still volunteer at Kelly Elementary. We still have like kind of all church things because it's fun to celebrate that together. But we don't think that's the goal. The goal is for you is to gauge with people treated insignificantly in your day-to-day -day life. And um, if you're like, I don't engage with people treated insignificantly in your day-to-day -day life, I would say, oh, really? Let's talk about that. <laughs> really? Uh, it, it could be quite possible that you are and you're not aware. So let's talk about that. Uh, not in like a shaming way, but like, yeah, that's interesting. That's a fun question. Uh, so yeah, and we're also going to be talking more about our flow of service and how we have our service feel like one thing from beginning to end. Um, how do we have kind of a, a liturgical flow all throughout service? So it's a part of what we're doing as a church that we're learning, we're growing, we're evolving, and we're hoping that your voices is a key part of that that makes sense. So thanks for letting me do that little thing, telling you about all those things. All right, we're kicking off a new message series, and we're starting with Socrates and Plato. Ooh, huh? Let's get started. So um, you see, this is a, a little helpful graphic. Uh, we're talking about Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Boop, boop, boop. Uh, they, that you have Socrates influenced and was the teacher of Plato, who is the teacher and influenced Aristotle. And they created in, this, uh, in the world that Jesus was a part of and the New Testament was written in, their teaching and theories and way of engaging the world were the dominant theories and ways of engaging the world. Uh, and when you think of like, you're like, well, they were alive like a long time before the time of Jesus. Uh, information moves much more slowly in uh, both a pre-literate and a pre-connected through the internet world. So we have to constantly, we move in like rapid waves of new thoughts, new ideas, 
because of how quickly we can disseminate them. But thinking in an ancient world mindset, these are dominant thoughts that take longer to form and create, but they carry weight for a much longer period of time. And the reason why we want to talk about these this morning is you can't separate the letters and the writings that are happening in the New Testament from the culture that they were created in. Um, one of my favorite little sayings, and you've probably heard me say it a number of times if you've, if you've been here before, is that a text without a context is a pretext for making it say whatever you want. So if you don't take the text and locate it in a time and a place and an actual person, it gives you the ability to just make it say what you want it to say. Because without knowing their context, our default is to speak out of our context. And I actually think a lot of harm and damage has been done within the Christian tradition of people not contextualizing scriptures and verses and just saying, no, this is what it means. This is what it says. So some of you might say, why are we talking about Aristotle and Plato? Because I don't think we understand what is being said unless we understand the culture it's being created out of. So Plato has this thing called the theory of forms. And what that is, is basically everything we see in the world is a form that has been created by an ultimate reality that we don't see and experience. So what that would look like is there is ultimately a human being. And we're all copies of the human being that none of us has seen, none of us have ever encountered, but it's the truest version of humanity, of a human being, and we're all facsimiles. So another thing that they would say, and this, this goes to every item that exists, you experience chairs, but you've never experienced chair. Does that make sense? You've seen cats, but you've never experienced cat. There is a cat, which would, let's be honest, be the most Instagrammable cat in the world. There is cat that exists, and we're just seeing copies and forms of that out in the world. And to help people understand it, uh, Plato used what's called the allegory of the cave. Um, and we're going to put up the picture. Hopefully, it's enough that you can see it. But if not, hopefully, my descriptions will help kind of clear up what this is. So Plato used this story, and he used it that Socrates was sharing it, that there are prisoners in a cave, and they've been chained to a wall, and they are facing in the direction of that wall. So all that they ever see, the entirety of their experience, is that wall. And there's a small fire in the cave that's casting a light on that wall. And every once in a while, people will walk by with different pictures or tangible items will pass by the fire, and they'll see the reflection on the wall. So after a while, when they see something furry with a tail walk by, a shadow on the wall, they're like, that's dog. And they name it, and they have a, a creation for it. And you can say it's like the same words that we have. Those are people. That's a dog. That's a vase. That is a horse. And then, in this story, the allegory of the cave, one of the prisoners gets free and goes to the other side and goes, oh, it's actually a fire that's burning and it's making a reflection. Like, this is the actual image of a dog. And then the allegory goes further. That prisoner gets out of the cave and gets outside and is like, there's a really, really big fire out here called the sun that lights everything up. And there's like actual dogs that run around and move. And they see and experience the world for what it actually is. Then come back down in the cave and tell the other prisoners, like, you're never going to believe this. And guess what? They don't believe him. In fact, they think he's gone mad and they threaten to kill him. 
which was Plato, the reason why he told that story is because that's what happened to his mentor. They did kill Socrates. They were threatened by his ideas and the way that he was moving. So he's using this allegory also to tell a story. So what this created for the world is that there was a difference between physical, tangible things and things that existed as an idea. So they would say, all of our world is lived in a cave. But some of us, the philosophers, get to exit the cave and they see and experience the real world. Now, because this is a Roman culture, one of the words they used to describe what the real world was and what real things were, were the logos, or the word. The words were the actual description of them. So, here's what I want you to, to take away from this. One, the word is always more important than the tangible, physical thing that you can hold, and it creates a clear split. The physical things are impure, not good, false, cheap replications of the real thing that none of us has seen and touched. So it creates a clear spirit-body split. Uh, and this is kind of known as a classical dualism, that we see these two things as everything in the world is either spirit or it's physical. And the physical isn't very good, and the spirit is the actual good thing. Are you all with me? Whew, most of you nodded your head. Okay. The reason why this is important is we're going to be looking at 1 John, and so I want you to see how John spoke to this culture and this mindset in talking about who Jesus was. Because it's so important, and dare I say, I feel like in more modern Christianity, we've gone back to this idea. We've gone more Plato than we have John and Jesus. We've gone more Plato than we have Bible. Um, but it's not always immediately evident. So, we're going to look at John 1, 1 through 19. It's a lot of scripture, but hang with me because it's so good. All right, here we go. John 1, 1 through 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, pause for a second. Think of the allegory of the cave. In the beginning was the word, meaning the true sun existed outside of the cave, and everything that has been created was created through this, through the sun, through true reality. And the darkness has tried it, but the darkness can't win possibly because there's something that's truer than true that exists in the world. The reason why I say this is that we read it as a Christian audience, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're talking about God and Jesus, right? No. The earliest audiences would have read it, and they would have said the Logos, the word, and they would have understood it totally differently. They would have thought about it in the actual form that exists that is truth and reality. So you don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be Christian. You don't have to be anything other than just a person who's alive in the time of John to read and understand what he's saying so far. Continuing on in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, and so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone and was coming into the world. What John's saying here, not speaking of himself, but John the Baptist, he was like a prisoner freed. He went and saw and experienced the light, and he came back to us as prisoners and said, this is what the light is like. 
And again, this would have fit in their idea that John the Baptist would have been a prophet, an enlightened one, someone who saw and experienced things that other people don't. Continues on in verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Continuing on in verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the record scratch moment. Wait, what? The reality of truth that exists out here, the idealized form, became human, put on flesh, and actually showed up. Using the allegory of forms, chair became a chair. Cat became a cat. And this one, the word, the ultimate truth, became human. That would have blown people's minds. Because you're bringing two opposite ends of a magnet together. That's not how it works. They can't coexist in the same way. And he continues on, bringing it home in verse 15. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the big moment, because if you've noticed so far, John never said Jesus. He's talking about word, truth, life, all of this, and then the big reveal is, wait, how did the word become flesh? Jesus. Jesus was the manifestation of two things we thought were separate and different, one good, one bad, and brought them together into one. The word showed up in human form. Some of you are like, all right, you're passionate. I'm not getting it, man. (laughs) This is why this matters. Because so much of our experience of spirituality and religion is that us, human beings, flesh, bad, God, good. And ultimately, I have to overcome, I have to ascend, I have to transcend my human earthly form, this world, to get to a higher plane and a higher reality, and that will be where I find God. But if you really believe that and listen to this, what John is saying, you will be ascending the same ladder that Jesus was descending. You will be trying to go somewhere where Jesus isn't. Jesus came here to us in human form and flesh, And what that tells us is there's something we don't have to reject about this world, about ourselves, about physical things, but Jesus is actually revealed in those. This would have been a huge mind shift that would have happened for all the people. Now, that was John, and we're doing a book on 1 John. So, why we talked about all that and set that up was because it's the whole introduction to what's happening that John is ultimately going to address. So let's get into a little bit of the specifics of 1 John. The first is who wrote it. 1 John is written by John, who was a fisherman. Uh, James and John were two disciples who were fishing. Jesus are like, hey, come follow me, and they do. 
And this will just be a quick thing, because uh, that can be a, a bit kind of confusing or distracting. In the Jewish system, all Jewish boys would have trained to become a Pharisee, a teacher, a rabbi. It's like you just got enlisted into rabbi school from the age of five. But they had different markers and times throughout your progression that if you weren't good enough or fast enough or memorizing enough of the sacred scriptures, you got sent back to your family to go learn a trade. So go back to your father, your uncle, someone to teach and train you, because this was just for the boys in a patriarchal time in society. You go back to that person and learn a trade, because this is not in the cards for you. So a lot of times, it's really confusing. Jesus walks up to fishermen. He's like, hey, come follow me. And they're like, sounds good, and throw away their nets and go walking off of Jesus. Why would they do that? They're like, well, they just have more faith than you. No, because they just got called up to the big leagues, and they were the not good enoughs. They were the ones that dropped out at some point. Why do the fishermen and the tax collectors get called by Jesus and follow? Because they just got invited to things that they were told before you're not cut out for. So this is John. He got invited into the story and this journey, and of course he followed. Also, we see he's the brother of James. They're known as the James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee, and they're known as the sons of thunder. They got a lot of passion. They got a lot of vigor. They fire off their mouths a lot, um, which is kind of fun if you're around those people in small doses. So that was John. And as we go through the letters, you're going to see a bit of his fiery kind of taking people on and like, if you're into the Enneagram, like eightness. Um, the other thing about John is he was the youngest of the disciples. And if you read through um, the Gospel of John, what's really fun about it is uh, eight different times in the book, he refers to this beloved disciple, which is believed to be his signature. It's how John puts himself in the Bible, the beloved disciple or the one who Jesus loved. My favorite of all these stories is go read about the Easter story in John um, because it has this fun little tidbit of like the disciples heard and Peter started running, but the one who Jesus ran, loved ran faster and overtook him. And then later when it got to there, it's like, and they both got there, but the one who Jesus loved totally got there first, which I just love that John is just putting these details in. He's like, how do I get in how fast I am into the gospel? I know. Um, so that's John. And then uh, who is John writing this to? It doesn't have a specific to in there. So what is likely um, true during this time is that when you write a letter, it wouldn't just be like, dear Karen, and like it was just for Karen to like put in a shoebox and hold on to forever. It was to the church to be cycled around to other churches. And in early Christianity, you have really small communities and house communities. So this is likely written to lots of small different churches in the city of Ephesus, which is a, tra a trade city. It's a port city. So uh, what's significant about port cities is these are the center of new ideas, new religions, new theories, new philosophy. It's kind of a hotbed for all that because you have people traveling from all over that are kind of speaking into it. It's the place where you get new ideas. Um, that's the culture that John's writing this to. Um, and the last thing is that John in 1 John is addressing some very early heresies. So let's talk about heresies. Um, if you're not familiar with heresies, um, heresies are like ideas that are other than traditional Christianity. 
And early on, people had lots of different ideas about who Jesus was. And so the earliest writers were trying to say, no, this is who Jesus is. This is what it's about. So kind of the three heresies we want to look through is the Cerinthians. Um, and this was their theory. This all goes back to the allegory of forms and believing that spirit and flesh can't be one. Um, the Cerinthians believe that uh, there was Jesus who was a human being and there was Christ who was divine. And so what they believed was Jesus grew up, had his whole childhood life, turned 30, went to get baptized, and boom, Christ came into the human body of Jesus. Jesus and Christ went around for three years, gets put up on a cross, and boom, Christ leaves. Which, not to make a joke of a first century heresy, but we're about to, I, you may not think this is funny, so apologies. I think there's so fun, something so funny about Jesus, like, I'm getting baptized to the next moment. What the heck? <laughs> I'm on a cross? How did this happen? <laughs> the belief was that humanity wasn't fit for divinity, and humanity or divinity could not suffer. That divine, the word, the truth, this ultimate truth that existed, would never hang on a cross and die. That's insane. So how they worked around it was the divinity just popped into humanity for like the miracle parts. And then right before it got hairy, zoomed out. So it's very much holding on to these two different ideas. The other thought is uh, the Doetists, um, which literally means to seem. And they say that Jesus only seemed to be human. Um, and a lot of their beliefs centered around, like, no one actually touched Jesus. Like, he looked human, but he didn't actually, which, this is fascinating. If you go back and look at the stories of Jesus, look at how many times the writers of the Gospels talk about people touching Jesus. Because they're saying, no, 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 don't do that thing where it's just a spirit. And it becomes even more significant to both of these kind of early heresies that when Jesus returns, what does Jesus do to Thomas? Touch my actual wounds. The resurrected Jesus is like, here they are, which is an important, significant piece of theology. That the resurrected Jesus isn't healed of those wounds. That Jesus carries those wounds. We're like, yeah, that's how the story goes. That's insane. Resurrected body on the other side of like coming back, you can come back from death. And you're like, yeah, but I still got my scar from taking a biff on my bike in second grade. The reason why that's significant is because it's saying it matters. Suffering matters, and God is there. God doesn't zoom out of our suffering because God didn't zoom out of his suffering and the suffering of Jesus. And so the disciples and the followers of Jesus are trying to pull back together something that culturally people are pulling apart. To accept Jesus, they're like, we got to pull these things apart. And they're saying, no, these are one thing. The last is the Gnostics. Um, and they, uh, this is kind of like a math problem. Like you have Cerinthians and Doecists, and like both of them can be Gnostics. It's like a, a big kind of holding. Gnostics means like a special knowledge. And they actually believe that some human beings could have the spiritual seed and that they could become sinless or would be sinless. So there's a, some kind of special knowledge you can have through the journey of Christianity and who Christ was, and you could be sinless and free of all those things. So these are all the different things that John is trying to address. 
Not because, and this is an important distinction, the way we talk about heresies now, if that's something you talk about, I don't know, the way we talk about heresies now is like, you're out, we're in. You're wrong, we're right. And usually it's about ideas that don't threaten the very heart of the Christian story. They're other things. In this early time, they're addressing these not because they're like, we're right, you're wrong, but if, you, if we walk down this path, we pull apart the very story of Jesus. We lose the heart of the message. Does that make sense? So for John, he wasn't like having um, an adolescent fight with someone that he disagreed with. He was saying, if we lose this thing now, we're actually going to lose a huge part of what the story is. So hopefully that understands. This is who wrote it or who is attributed to write it. Because like John didn't sign it. He wasn't like, John. Um, but it's attributed to John because of where it was written, who was written. It could have been followers, but certainly influenced by John. Written in Ephesus, a city with lots of different ideas and thoughts to kind of small Christian communities. And it's written specifically to address these ideas that are way more about Plato and Socrates than there are about who Jesus is. Okay, let's read a little bit. First John 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. See, that's important now. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If any of you grew up with DC Talk, you're doing it in your head right now, and I know it. (laughs) I want to be in the light. All right. If we claim to be without sin, this is important. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Okay. This is going to be just a little bit more about my own personal experience. These verses right here, when I grew up, were used primarily to be like, look, you little sinner. Stop pretending that you're not. You're a filthy little sinner, and you need Jesus real bad. And like, I feel like there was this air around me that like, I don't know what you did, but it's probably really, really bad. And that's why you're in church, and that's why you need this. That is so far away from the spirit with which this was written. What John is writing is some of you think you can be sinless. Some of you think you are sinless, that you have this idea that you're walking through the world in such a way where you're causing no harm and no damage. And might I say, those are some of the most dangerous people that exist. The people that believe they can do no harm to others in the world are some of the most dangerous because they don't have eyes and awareness for, I'm so sorry. They could never apologize for something because they're like, well, clearly you perceive that slight or that sin. But me, I'm sinless. That isn't something I do. 
What John is inviting people into is to say, see that this is a part of all of us. All of us are in sin. This idea of Gnostic idea that some of us have the spiritual sin and we're sinless, that's insanity. But do you know what he's saying? There's so much grace in that. Just admit it. If you own up to that, it's not held over your head. This isn't an ax waiting to cut off your head. That God ultimately knows this, knows that we screw up, that we break relationship with one another and we break relationship with ourselves. And there's a healing grace that is coming and flowing from who Jesus is. What's so interesting, the reason why I wanted to start the message series with this, is there's a lot in John that you can see is classic dualism. He uses sin and not sin. He uses light and dark. He uses life and death. And what I think John is doing, if John was just playing into there these two clear categories and everything in your life is either life or death, he would actually be playing into the hand of all the heresies he was seeking to address. That the world can be divided up into one of two categories. I think he's speaking the language of the day of two categories because at the end of every of those two categories, he always goes, but whoop, but they're one thing. You can't divide them. You want to split up word and flesh. Sorry, whoop, they're one thing in who Jesus is. You want to divide up sin and like living without sin. Nope, whoop, they're all in one place and world. And I hope you hear that whoop in your head this whole week. This is why I think it matters for you today and this week. When all reality is one, it increases the ways that God can speak to us. See, a lot of times our body is calling out, like our physical body is calling out the name of Jesus, and we're trying to suppress it and quiet and put it aside so we can have a prayer time where we can hear God. But we're ignoring that it's all one reality that God's speaking to us through our physical bodies. We try and get away from the world and find like a prayer closet and get in the dark. And, and that's great. I'm not trying to say that's, that's not helpful. It's great sometimes to close your eyes and to find this other space. But what we can be doing is cutting off the physical world with which God is speaking to us. Because it's all one thing. It's all one world. We don't get to divide out what these people do and these people don't. And we live in a world that, again, I think is more platonic than it is Christian. Meaning that it's way more about Plato's dividing the world up. Who are you? Are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Are you on this side or are you on that side? Are you Black Lives Matter or are you Blue Lives Matter? And instead, to be able to walk through those realities and say, but there is one people. And how do we not prioritize one story over the other, but actually engage and listen in both stories to see the kingdom of God come to both places? Yeah, there's some stories we haven't heard and we need to talk about more. And there's other stories that we've ignored and say, well, that story can't be heard right now because we need to listen to this story but we're cutting off our nose despite our face. Christianity is saying we have to pull these things together, and this story informs this story. I don't know where you're going for Thanksgiving, but I feel like that's an important message to hear as you go into Thanksgiving. <laughs> there, there's not some part of the table that can't be a part of the table. It has to be. 
And if you want to disagree and spite up uh, ideologies, that's fine. But what if you sought to connect through your humanity? I don't know that we can agree on politics, but tell me about where you grew up. Tell me about your childhood. You can ask your parents those questions. I'll bet you'll find some incredible things that doesn't make the other ideas go away or not matter, but it certainly informs them. And it allows us to hold it all as one thing. There isn't an experience, a time, or a place that can't speak the name of Jesus. I think this is the heart of what John is saying. There's an experience, there isn't a time, and there isn't a place that can't speak the name of Jesus. I think this is why Jesus says so often those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Are you awake and aware to this moment? Can you receive that Jesus can be even here? Or have you already identified, this is how I understand Jesus and this is what I don't? And this is from, coming from the kid that exclusively listened to Christian music. Like, I would only listen to Christian things because that's how God spoke to us. But it's not that. It's bigger than that. God is speaking to us through more things. And it's not that we can't hear God through these channels, but there are so many more channels. There's so many more channels. My hope for you this week is that you would see that it's all one. And may you lean more fully into those places where you've decided that God is not, that the name or the voice of Jesus is not, to have eyes to discover Jesus even there. Because it's one story and one reality. Would you stand? I want to send you off with a blessing this week. May you see that there is one reality that God is in and through. And may you become curious about all the ways that God can be speaking to us through our body, through our mind, through our spirit, and through the world that is all around us. Amen and amen. Have a great week.